Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Well, this is week two of our new series, uh, Tis the Season, Putting the Holy Back in the Holidays. And you know, what's more holy than eating? Seriously. I mean, have you guys ever thought about that for a moment? You know, God uh, has a lot of feasts in the Bible because he's awesome. You know what I'm saying? I mean, who doesn't like feasts? I mean, that's my official theological position. God is awesome. That's why he put feasts in the Bible. And of course, we had a feast, hopefully, this last week. Did any of you feast on Thursday? Seriously? Okay, let me see. All right, yes, we feasted. It's okay. This is a non-judgment zone, like Planet Fitness. You can eat whatever you want, cookies, donuts, right, whatever, pizza, because they have pizza and donut nights at Planet Fitness. Have you guys? All right, anyway, maybe you haven't gone there. Um, but I love to feast as well. I don't know if you can tell, hopefully not, but maybe. And I love to eat. But have you ever been in that position where you were sitting at the table and, and you're smelling, you know, the, the sweet corn? Mm. Can you smell it now? You know, you're smelling the potatoes. Oh, those potatoes, man. The stuffing. Do we have any stuffing lovers? I love stuffing. And then it's amen, and there's a bum rush to get in line, right? Because you're very worried that somehow they might just run out of your favorite dish. See, I'm the youngest of five children, okay? And that means I had to um, learn to eat at an ungodly pace. Because if I did not do that, there would be no stuffing left by the time I was finished with my first plate. Because the three oldest in me were boys. And they could all put down the stuffing, the potatoes, the green bean casserole. Oh, we didn't have that this year. I know we had other vegetables instead, but oh. We didn't have the green bean casserole. No, I love that green bean casserole. And I just would be so freaked out as a kid. Like, I'm not going to be able to get it. It's like, and it actually, that has stayed with me somewhat. Ashley will sit there at the dinner table, and I literally will be done in like two minutes. I don't know, guys, if you have this problem. And then I'm left to sit there as Ashley finishes, you know, her plate over the course of 30 minutes. But... I guess it's just this, you know, and, and habit from the past that I've inherited. But it's funny to me, though, that we can have such abundance, you know, have such abundance in our life. And yet, at the same time, we are exquisitely aware of scarcity in our life. Now, I don't know if you guys know what scarcity is. Most of you do, but just to make sure that I'm clear, scarcity is a lack of something, a lack of some kind of resource. 
And we live in the most abundant time in, in, in this country, in the history of the world. There has never been a time where people had more access to more things and more stuff and more food even. And never a country than there is right now here in the United States of America. We live in abundance. And yet, how many of you guys would say, I feel like I have everything I want? Raise your hand. Thank you. Well, I don't know. Are you really telling the truth? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Most of us wouldn't. Because I think in the reality, when we begin to look at it, um, even if we have all the things that we want, or we actually intellectually know, oh, I have everything I want, I certainly have everything I need, yet at the same time, it seems like there is a continuous cycle of appetites and desires and wants that is never really satisfied. Like we could always have more money. We could always have more time. Right, where's the time gone? Seems like it just slips out of my fingers. We could always have more love. I'm not talking about annoying love. I'm not talking about frustrating love. I'm saying we can always have more of that sense that we're valued, that we're worthwhile. And it's amazing to me that on one day, we can feel so valuable because people have spoken value into our lives and they've given us gifts or they've loved us intensely. And then the next day, we can be so down in the dumps because it seems like it's never enough. We live in this world of limitations, don't we? Let's just be honest. We live in a world of limitations. And it seems like there is this experience that we have in life where internally we have these drives, we have these desires, we have these wants, we have in essence a demand inside of our heart that cannot be met or that isn't met. It seems like it just keeps going. We, we don't get satisfied with things. We, we get down. We're always, we're going to be hungry again. We're going to be thirsty again. And those are just our physical needs. We're going to need rest. We're always going to need rest again. We're always going to need to sleep again. We have these extreme limitations, really, when you start to think about it. And then when you ask about emotional or start talking about emotional needs, it's even more so like we get lonely. We're going to get lonely again. You know, we're going to need love again. You can't just tell someone you love and want you that classic thing. Well, I told you I loved you on our wedding day. That should be enough. You know, that's like garbage. And we all know that. You know what I'm saying? It's like, no, we always need this renewing cycle, this, this renewal from a resource that doesn't stop. And yet we have these desires inside, but we are met in reality with a world of limitations, a world of scarcity. A world where it seems like there is no limitless supply. And I know that we've been there. You know, it seems like there's this unlimited supply of desire and there's this limited supply of resource. My son, he's got an unlimited ability to ask me for candy. I mean, it, it is amazing. It's uncanny. 
It seems like he's got unlimited energy, although he does crash at night. You know? Maybe you know someone that they seem to have an unlimited supply of sarcasm. You ever met someone like that? And if you're that person, you think everyone else has an unlimited supply of stupid. Do I agree? Do you agree with me? It seems like there are these unlimited things in our hearts that are met with a limited world, a world of scarcity. And what this does over time is it begins, I think, to destroy our sense of dreaming. It begins to eat away at our faith. It starts to actually create a skepticism in us. That we don't think that's actually true or a cynicism. Well, that person is only out for themselves. Or that's not really worth it. And so we begin to harden, so to speak. And we start to close people out. And we close God out. There's this amazing passage in the Bible that actually kind of speaks to this idea. This idea of scarcity, of limitations, of limited resources, but then it says something, it says something amazing. Something that is truly hard to believe. It actually tells us about the nature of God. And actually talks about God's goodness and God's love. And see, if God is eternal, if he's perfect and he is who he says he is, he's infinite, then he does not have limitations. There, are no, there is no scarcity with his ability to provide. And yet, when we look at this, we get very skeptical about whether or not God is good and whether or not God loves us. I think if we're really honest, that we all go through time. Some of us are there right now. Some of us go through that every single day. They question, is God really good? And does he really love me? And you're not the first one to ask that question. People have been asking and pondering that question for millennia upon millennia. And there is a deep tension in the idea and understanding that we have a limitless, infinite God, and yet we are so limited ourselves. And yet we deal with scarcity all the time, every single day. And so no wonder we begin to ask ourselves, it can't be true. It's a fairy tale. It's too good to be true. And yet, King David, a man, the Bible says, is after God's own heart. A man who was a murderer. A man who committed adultery. And yet, repented and worshiped God. A man whom God saw, he was a shepherd, and he was in the sheep fields, the pastures, and God saw him from the time he was a baby, and God anointed him king. After Saul disobeyed God, the first king of Israel, Saul disobeyed God, and God chose David as his anointed servant to be king, 
starting in the sheep pens, moving to the throne room. The David who had so many different experiences with God, he actually has the audacity to write these words. Psalm 23, 6. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. I mean, when you actually look at that, and when you think about what it means, I just want you to be really honest with yourself. Do you believe that? That his goodness and his love follow you? And that word, were you to look it up and try to see what it means because it wasn't written originally in English. It was written in a language called Hebrew, ancient Hebrew. And that word actually is a word that's used of animals pursuing their prey. Of someone who had had their relative or loved one murdered and they were pursuing the person that did it. It's the kind of pursuit that is ferocious. I mean, let's just think about it for a second. Do we really feel like God pursues us His goodness and his love pursue us, tracking us, following us, coming after us with unbelievable velocity. Do we actually believe that? And I can tell you with a straight face this morning that I believe this more than I ever have in my entire life. I haven't always believed this. Many times I haven't acted as if this was true. And yet I have a deep conviction that David was not blowing smoke. That David wasn't kidding around. That he didn't write this and pen this as a cruel joke. But that this is real. Does God actually love us? And is he actually good? And how do we actually figure this out? in a world that's so filled with limitation, with pain and hurt, with scarcity. How do we figure it out? Well, I think the answer is in the very same psalm. It's in the very same work that David penned. Right before he wrote these words, we can get insight into how he began this psalm, and it comes in the form of this unbelievable image. And it's the image of a shepherd. You all maybe know the verse. Many of you do. Psalm 23, 1. Feel free to read it out loud with me as I do. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I mean, come on. I mean, just think about those words for a moment. How many of us can honestly say on a daily basis that we can say these words with integrity? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. 
Well, I'm thankful that whether or not we can say it with integrity has no bearing on whether or not it's true. I'm thankful that God is bigger than our doubts. I'm thankful that God transcends all of our pettiness at times. He can even transcend and go beyond our pain. See, I think looked in when you look at this verse, you see a absolutely startling truth. And if I could just think about this for a second, if we could just analyze it and look at it for a minute to actually ask what it actually means, I hope that by the end of it, by the time I'm done talking today, that you will have a sense that, yes, I kind of do believe that. Or at least I, I'm a little more convinced than I was at the beginning. And if you want to get there, I think you have to begin to look at what these words actually mean. Like, what does it mean, the Lord? See, that's not a random word. That is a very intentional word. That word defines who God is. That is actually God's personal name. If you look at the original language, the word is Yahweh. You might have heard that before. See, there are all sorts of gods that people worshipped at that time. There were idols that they constructed of wood and of stone and of metal that they would bow down and worship to. And those idols controlled, they thought, the world. They, there was a God for fertility. There was a God for the fields. There was a God for enjoyment. There was a God for wine. And this was everywhere. Everybody worshipped different gods. And I would submit to you that we are no different today. We don't call them Baal or Asherah anymore, but we worship sex. We worship money. We worship power. We put relationships before God all the time. We put our own convenience before God all the time. We choose ourselves and our self-interest, not trusting in God that he is good, that he means good for us, that he loves us, and that he and his plan is right. And we always substitute a fake, an idol for the real Lord. And he wanted to distinguish himself. I am not the God of the fields. I'm not the God of the mountains. I'm the God of everything. My name is Yahweh. I'm the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. I'm the Lord who controls everything, even down to the subatomic level. Nothing happens outside of God's control. He is Yahweh. He is the personal, loving God, the one who created everything, and the one who came to his people to show them his love. We see this in Exodus 3, 14 through 15. It says this, Nexus 3, 14 through 15, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This was Moses, an Israelite who was stuck in the wilderness, who was stuck under subjection to the Egyptians, king, you know, Prince of Egypt style, right? And then they brought them out. This is the same Moses, and God reveals himself, and he says, this is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is the Lord. The God revealed in scripture. The same God who is here with us, ready to meet each of us in our place of need in our place of limitation today. 
He is the Lord, and he is a shepherd. See, a shepherd has two main jobs, to rear and tend sheep. Now, those are kind of maybe obscure words a little bit, but to rear something is to bring that thing up, person or animal, to a place of maturity, providing all of the needs. To tend something is to focus your attention in providing and caring for that person. So what it means is that God, the God who created the universe, has committed himself to anyone who knows him, who loves him, those he has pursued have responded to his love and his call to them that he promises from the time that you are made a new person, that your soul is made alive, a new birth, that he will watch over you from the very beginning all the way to the end of your life, that he will never stop and that he will pay attention to you. See, we lapse attention all the time. Even the people that are so focused on us, the people closest to us, they cannot pay attention to us indefinitely. They can't pay attention to us forever. And yet God, there is never a single lapse of attention in God's care. Do you hear that this morning? There is never one time where God is not paying attention to you. where he doesn't know what's going on. When he doesn't realize the frustration. See, the shepherd knew every single sheep. He cared for that sheep. He healed that sheep. He made sure that each individual sheep was taken care of, provided for, fed, loved, embraced. And if God is perfect, which he is, and if he's a shepherd, he's a perfect shepherd. And that means there is never a single time where God is not committed to making you the person he wants you to be. And there's not one single second of your life where he is not paying attention to you and where his love is not focused on you. The Lord is a shepherd, but there's one more word, isn't there? He's my shepherd. Notice it doesn't say he's our shepherd. He's my shepherd. He's your shepherd. That's a possessive. That means there's ownership. That means God can actually, he's actually done it so that we can, our relationship with him is so close that we can actually use the word my. that there's such connection. See, maybe we think, oh, God, yeah, he's powerful. I'll give that. He created the world. I'll give that. Okay, fine. He created the world, then let it go. He did all that stuff, made everything, but he's not really involved in the details of my life. He doesn't care what college I go to. He doesn't care what relationships I'm in. He doesn't care how I spend my money. He doesn't care how I spend my time. He doesn't care what the conversations that I've had. He doesn't care about what I watch and what I see. 
He doesn't care about how my relationship with my husband or my wife is doing. He doesn't care about the relationships with my friend, how they're doing. He doesn't care about what I eat. He doesn't care about what I do. He's there if I need him. If it's an emergency, I'll make sure to call. And yet what we see here is we see a reciprocal relationship. And what I mean is we see a relationship where, yes, God is ours. He's my shepherd, and I'm his sheep. He cares about every detail. He cares about everything in your life. He wants to hear you. He wants to talk to you. He wants to care for you. He wants to know you. He wants to give you everything you need. The Lord is my shepherd. And so when we have that kind of Lord, it kind of makes sense that you could follow with the phrase, I lack nothing. See, if God's eternal, he's powerful, he has everything that we need, he can provide for all things, there's nothing that's beyond him, nothing. If that's the kind of God that we serve, limitless in power, perfect in his execution of his duties, understanding every detail of our life, when we come to him, we come to someone who already knows everything we've done. We come to someone from whom we cannot hide anything. That should be freeing. Because it's not just like we're coming to him and he's, he's angry at us. No, he's our shepherd. He's like, yeah, I know that you shouldn't have talked to your daughter that way. You criticized and hurt her. And that was upsetting. And now they're straining the relationship. But I'm your shepherd. Come talk to me about it. I'm going to give you peace. When we don't lack anything, it means that everything that God wants us to accomplish, he will make sure it happens. He'll give us everything we need, even abundantly more than we need, to accomplish the life, the full life, and to enjoy the full life that he has for us. He is our shepherd. And as you begin to walk through this psalm, what you see is you see his love and care. You see in Psalm 23, verse 2 and 3, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. All of this has to do with God bringing us to a place of deep and profound rest. A place where there is such supply that we don't have to feel like we have to work. That we don't have to feel like everything depends on us. It's a place where you can let loose and just be yourself and just relax. Just imagine that for a moment. If you could just relax, what would that feel like? If you could just say, you know what, God? You're my shepherd. You've got it. And there was peace See, sheep, they couldn't find their own food. 
The sheep, they couldn't find their own way. The sheep, they would just keep wandering, going astray, and doing whatever they want. And yet, what is the Lord? He is a shepherd that brings us to places of profound rest. The place where we can trust him and know he's going to accomplish everything that he wants to accomplish. And we do not have to please him with our performance. but rather love him in our hearts. It's the place where we can understand what we can control, what we can't control. It's the place where anxiety begins to fade. So our anxieties tell us something. Our anxieties tell us that we have become a sheep that is strayed from the shepherd. And we've moved around into another place where there's not good food. And God wants to lead us back, wants to lead us to a place of rest. It goes on as well to talk about in Psalm 23, 3, that he guides us to right paths for his name's sake. He's not doing this because we deserve it, because we've earned the gold star or the badge. He's doing it simply because he loves us and simply because it represents his love and his glory and his name when he provides for us. And he goes before us. The imagery is of a well-worn path where God has already scouted the way. There's nothing that you're going to encounter in life that God has not seen. I mean, if your good shepherd who loves you and knows you and knows what you need has already seen what's going to happen, that you can trust him to bring you through even the worst places. And see, that's what he says in verse 4, that even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Think about that for just a moment. What, if, what would happen if you were not afraid? What would you do if you weren't afraid? How would you live if you were not afraid? We know this as the valley of the shadow of death. And yes, that is even what it means. That even in death's darkest pitch black shadow. We don't have to fear. What if you didn't fear death? How would that live? How would that affect the way you live your life? What would you do differently? What kind of conversations would you have? What kind of honesty and boldness would you live with? What kind of trust would you have? Would you stop being afraid of everything? Stop doubting all the time and take a step? What would you do if you believe that those words are true? What would you do if you believe that God is protecting you from your enemies? What would you do if you believe that as you go astray, he will correct you? That his rod will defend you against the bear and the lion, against the enemy, against the one who gossips about you at work, against the one who hates you, and you don't even know why, even against your very self. The things you say to yourself, the things you tell yourself, 
how you're terrible and horrible, how you're not worth it or it won't work or it's not going to happen. What if you believe that God was your shepherd, that he would defend you and correct you, that he would provide every single one of your needs? What would you do? What would you do if you realized the impact of this verse in verse 5 where it says that he prepares a table for us, for me in the presence of my enemies, that he anoints our head with oil, that he actually cares so much about us, our cup overflows. This imagery of God now as a host, someone who is literally in the midst of the battle as it's raging around them, someone who is sitting there and setting a table in the middle of the battle, but not just any table, the table that they would use to celebrate and throw a banquet for the victory of a battle. How many of you can celebrate a victory when you're in the middle of a battle? Nobody can unless the Lord is their shepherd. And then what he says is, yeah, I know it's tough right now. I know the disease looks bad right now. I know financially it's super difficult right now. I know emotionally you're finding yourself in a dark place. I know what's going on in your life. And yet I am setting as your good host, the one who loves you, a table that says, we've already won. We've already won. How would it change your life? See, I think most of us live our lives in very deep doubt. We doubt that God loves us. We doubt that he really cares. We doubt that his will is better than our decisions. We doubt that he knows what's best with us. We live our lives just thinking there's no way. Why? Because it's good too good to be true. This is what is talked about Psalm 78. I love this psalm because it says, they willfully put God to the test by demanding for the food they craved. They spoke against God. It's talking about the Israelites in the wilderness, disobeying God. But look at this word. They said, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? It's too good to be true. I lived my life thinking that for a very long time. When I was young, grew up in a pastor's home, kind of lived the normal life of a, you know, in, in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. But several difficult things happened to me when I was a child. I was exposed to certain things I shouldn't have been exposed to. Several things happen in my life that create deep discomfort and anger inside. And, you know, when I grew up, I looked for security in a lot of different places. I began to look for security in friends. And we all know how that goes. It usually doesn't end well. And then after that, I started to look for security in girlfriends. Maybe you know how that goes. It usually doesn't end well. And then after that, I thought, man, you know, 
uh, I got to have something good. So I got to college and I thought, okay, I'm pretty smart. I'm good at studying stuff. So I put all my security in how smart I was. Or I'm intelligent. I can memorize a lot of Greek words. I can come in and I don't have to spend as much time as maybe they do. So, oh, I'm super smart. I'm going to put all of my, in, all of my security in intelligence. I'm going to put all of it in how I feel about myself. And then you come to someone who's smarter than you, as often happened to me. Or I failed a test, which happened. And then all that came crashing down, didn't it? Because you know how that goes. And then after that, I began to put my security in my wife. And she's awesome. And she's great, but she's not Jesus. Sorry, babe. She's not Jesus. And I put all my security in her. If she likes me, then I'm likable. If she thinks I'm worthy, then I'm worthy. If she loves me, then I'm lovable. But then Ashley gets mad at me because I do weird stuff sometimes. And we get in arguments or there's distance. And then what happens? I come crashing down. Oh, I can't do that. Got to move on to something else. So let me put my security in being a pastor. Let me put my security in a paycheck. Okay, I know that paycheck's going to come. Okay, that's my security. Okay, oh, I know my mentor. Let me put all my security in Gil. He loves me. And Pastor Gil, he loves me. Well, let me put my security in Pastor Life and what they think about me. And then what happens when we get in an argument? What happens when things are a little bit distant there? Or what happens when we hurt each other? I come crashing down. And my whole life, I put my security in all of these different things. And in the last year and a half, God has taught, brought me through an unbelievable process of saying your entire life, you have looked to the things that I've provided for you and you have replaced me with them. You have taken the provision I've given you and you've said, that's God. That's where my security is. It's in the paycheck. You've taken the relationships that I've put into your life and you've put them on a throne above me. And so everything had to come from me. Your entire life, you have looked to other people and the things that the shepherd has provided for me instead of to the shepherd himself. And God has said, that is no longer going to happen. If you're going to accomplish the thing I want for your life, then you have to move, your focus, your attention, your sense of security, all of the things that you value in yourself, you have to move that from Ashley and from Gil and from life and from your dad and from your mom and from your friends and from your ability to preach and from your ability to think through systems in the church and from all the things that you think you're so good at, you have to move it from all of that and you have to place it surely and securely in me. There is no other option because it didn't say Gil was my shepherd or life was my shepherd or my dad was my shepherd or my wife. It didn't even say I was my shepherd. It said one person could take that place, only one. There is no substitute. There is no one else who can do it. The Lord is my shepherd and I've made a baby cry and I'm sorry. The Lord, it's okay. The Lord, is, sorry, Samuel, I know I can get loud. The Lord is my shepherd. So guys, it's 1035. I know you're tired of listening to me, so. This is the the last full sermon that I'm going to preach here. 
You know, I get really sad. I'm going to miss looking in the crowd. I see people I know I'm going to miss. People I love, people I've invested my life into for six years. And it's not that much, I know. Six years is small compared to eternity and compared to the rest of my life, but it's significant. I owe a lot to this place and to the pastors here, the people here, to Gil, who I love so dearly and deeply, to life, who's been a mentor, to the people who have loved me, Brad, you know, where are you? We meet, you know, every week. Brad, another Brad. I could just name names. And if I can leave you with one thing, I think it would be this. That God really wants you to know and believe that he is good and that he loves you and that he's your shepherd. I've seen guys do this many times. They get an assignment from God and they get all revved up and then they replace their relationship with God with the assignment he's given. Maybe it's your family, your job, your money, your talent, your mind. And all of that stuff leaves you broken in the end. Because nobody can take that weight. There's only one person that can do that. And actually, his name is Jesus. That's what he says, John 10. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. I'm just going into a new assignment. That's it. The shepherd hasn't changed, right, babe? He's the same. That's all that's happening. And if I replace my love for him with a church plant, oh, God have mercy on my soul. If I replace anything or put anything in his place, man, may God save me from that. Because all of us are going to come to the end of our lives and there's two constants. Ourselves, the stories we've had, the things we've done, the people we've influenced, the places that we've been, the experiences that we've had in life. And I hope and pray that you make the most of it. But there's one other person that will be there and only one. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus will be there and he will meet you and he will do the last act of being your shepherd. He will shepherd you through the darkest valley, through the deepest place, into the eternal pasture where there is no more difficulty, where there is no more pain. That is who he is. And that's how good he is and how much he loves he is a shepherd. And if you can do one thing, just know your shepherd. 
Just love your shepherd. Just be there with your shepherd, and he's going to guide you every single place you need to be, and he's going to take care of everything along the way. And I can't think, I can't think of a better way to end this sermon than to end with the last verses of this psalm. It's Psalm 23, 6. We saw it in the beginning, but here's what it says. It says, surely your goodness and your love will follow me, pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus, thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to speak one more time. Pray that it spoke to hearts. And God, I ask that you would do what you do best. Convict, bring your love, bring your healing, bring people to you. And we ask this all in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you guys. I love you. We'll see you. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.